Good morning, church. This morning, my bride and I had the privilege of turning out onto Highway 14 from our home, and some of you may have saw uh, we had um, how great the art playing, and as we pulled out on the highway, there was this massive rainbow, gorgeous. Thought great, reclaiming the rainbow, and there, there it was, and right in the middle of it was the sun. It was just absolutely stunning. We were both captivated by it and had our own worship service on the way in. Last night, uh, before we dive into the text, a pastor friend in the area got a hold of me and he just said, you know, you guys going to be, ha-, you were texting, you're going to have worship services tomorrow. I said, of course. I mean, oh, okay. Well, I just, I just wondered. And so I, I just turned on the uh, Chiefs uh, Dolphins game. Sorry for all you Dolphins fans who got destroyed, but hey, God's providence. Um, <laughs> It is what it is. Uh, so anyways, I said, just for a little perspective, I said, uh, right now in Kansas City, Kansas last night, I said, there are 76,000 people sitting at Arrowhead Stadium. It is minus four. And they paid playoff prices to sit there for three hours in a football worship service. I said, tomorrow, you can, are we, our people get to come for free at 72 degrees and we get to fellowship and hear God's word. And he texted back, he said, yeah, 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 good perspective. So so anyways, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the gospel according to John that Heather read the preface to, the prologue. Most of us are aware, prologues, opening paragraphs are very important in a book. In fact, authors sometimes spend an inordinate amount of time on their opening paragraphs, opening sentences to do it. One of the most famous examples in English literature is, is uh, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. A lot of you know it. Uh, Dickens opens his very famous novel by summing up the era of the French Revolution, and he does it with these very famous words. Think of how well known these are. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. And it was the winter of despair. And with this prologue, he introduces, as Dickens does, to the major themes in his novel. In a very similar fashion, John uses what we call verses 1 to 18 to set up his gospel. Today, scholars call it the prologue. That's not what John called it, but that's clearly the way it's functioning in his book. And here's the key. It becomes the lens through which John views his entire gospel. Everything is read through the lens of this prologue that is to come. In these first 18 verses that are carefully crafted by the Holy Spirit through John, he develops, he begins to develop the themes that will become prominent in his book. The person of Christ, first and foremost. The person of the Holy Spirit gets a lot of attention in the Gospel of John, more than the other Gospels. Light and darkness, there's these opposing word plays. The witness of John the Baptist becomes a major theme. And Israel's rejection of the Savior. Last week when we began this series, we did an overview of John's Gospel. And we saw that of the four Gospels in our New Testament, John's unique focus is on Jesus as the unique only Son of God, the only Savior who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, definite article, the way, 
I am the truth and I am the life. Another definite article. No one comes to the Father except through me. The world calls that intolerant. The Bible calls it truth and says we should be grateful there's a way left to the Father. We started our series again last week by doing an overview. Today we're going to dive right into the prologue, these first 18 verses, where John is introducing us to something called the Word. And he wants us to know a number of things about the Word. We're going to look at four of those in particular. We're just going to take them one at a time. First of all, John will tell us the Word is eternal. Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning... And it's interesting, I won't do this a lot, but the Greek text just says in beginning. That's all it says in, the big, in John. The first two words in Greek, in beginning, there's no the, was the word. So I, I say that to highlight that John's talking about the ultimate beginnings. The be, you know, before time, this is in beginning, this is back in eternity. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He said the other Gospels start in different places. Some start with Luke. I mean, Luke starts with like the parents. And uh, then you go back to Matthew. And he starts all the way back, you know, to Abraham. And you, John goes back further. He goes way back. Way, 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 way back. All the way to beginning. That's where John begins. Now, some of you know what the Septuagint is. Just a reminder. What is it? The Septuagint is when, in about 200 BC, scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, took the Hebrew Bible because so much of the world was shifting over to Greek after Alexander the Great conquered the known world then. And because the world had shifted over, people weren't reading Hebrew much anymore. And so about 200 BC, the Hebrew Aramaic scriptures were translated into Greek. And it became known as the Septuagint because the theory is... 70 men did it. The point is this. In Genesis, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which, by the way, is the Bible Jesus generally quoted. He usually defaulted to quoting the Septuagint over the Hebrew text. In the Septuagint, the first two words in Greek, in Genesis 1-1, and Arche, in beginning, the same exact two words John picks up and begins his gospel with, in beginning. And in beginning, it's very clear as an absolute beginning. And then John tells us in verse 14, we're going to get down to that. He quickly moves to identify the word as Jesus. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. And the Greek term, we saw this last week, translated word is the Greek term logos in English, L-O-G-O-S. And it's a very familiar, it was a very familiar term in John's day from Greek philosophy. It also was a familiar term from the Hebrew Bible, especially wisdom books. So John took a familiar term and yet added a new dimension to it. I, I made a footnote last week. This was a little interesting. The word logos, most people say, oh yeah, you translate that's a word. You can. It's interesting that the NIV and the ESV, English Standard Version, two of the most common translations around here, uh, Whenever they come across the word logos in the Greek Bible, the Greek New Testament, use about 12 to 15 different English words to translate it. So you can translate it logic. You can translate it report. You can translate it a study of 
Or you can translate it with the word word or about 12 other different ways all around the same concept. Logos was associated in Greek philosophy with the ultimate. In the Old Testament, it was often associated with the spoken word of God or even linked to a coming uh, Messiah. The bottom line is that John wants you to know Jesus is the word and the word existed in beginning. And now he goes a step further and he tells us not only was the word in beginning, but the word was God. He makes two affirmations here, which Greek philosophy never would have made. The word is God and God was it, or the word was with God. So he's, he's telling us two things. The word was God, but then the word was with God. And that may make you scratch your head a little bit and go, well, that seems like two different things. No, what he's doing here is he's telling us something about the Godhead. That's the key. John is telling us Jesus is fully God. That's going to become even more clear in verse 14. But he's telling us about a mystery and that there is diversity and a plurality within the nature of the one true living God. And that clearly points to the doctrine of and highlights the doctrine of the Trinity. Now the word Trinity is not used in our Bible, nor is the word missionary or the word rapture. It doesn't matter if the term's used. What matters is, is it taught? Is the concept taught? You may say, well, where, where, where'd the word come from? The word Trinity. Well, it was first used in Greek, as far as we know, in the second century by, uh, by Theophilus of Antioch. And then Tertullian, the northern African church father, picked it up in his book in about 210 AD, and he used it in Latin. The point is, why were they, why were they even moved to use this word? Well, because the Bible's teaching there is only one God. The Bible is emphatically monotheistic. But then you get to the New Covenant and you have three different individuals, persons, called God. The Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God. And so, very simple definition of the Trinity is that within the nature of the one Godhead, there are three co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, something the creeds have confirmed over and over and over again. The first major work that we know of on the doctrine of the Trinity was by St. Augustine in the 5th century, entitled simply On the Trinity, over 500 pages long, and helping set the stage for the development of this very important doctrine. One of the first hints, by the way, of the mysterious complexity of God and his plurality comes in the opening of Genesis. The first term, one of the very first terms used of God in Genesis is the term, it's not his name, but it's the term, Elohim. It is a plural noun. It is a plural noun. The, the, there's an indication of plurality. And then just 26 verses into Genesis, you have God saying, let us create man in our image. So you have these early hints that become more and more explicit as Revelation unfolds from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Now, we don't have time to cover the doctrine of the Trinity today, but this verse clearly fits into that. Let me just highlight two things the Trinity would emphasize. Number one, that God is complete and delighted within himself. God is absolutely complete and delighted within himself. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He is eternally satisfied in the fellowship of the Trinity. And it, here's something it means. It means being in community 
is part of the very nature of God. As I sometimes say at the membership seminar, God has been, he's been in his own community group forever. So you should be in one. <laughs> but community is something that isn't just a good idea coming from the Bible. It's actually part of the Godhead. And it's something that distinguishes Christian monotheism from non-Christian monotheism. There are different religions that are believe in a God, but it's a unitary, not a Trinitarian God that we get in the Bible. The second thing the Trinity would emphasize to us is that God's ways are clearly mysterious and complex. And we should expect at times to be scratching our heads, or as I joke sometimes, we should expect at times to encounter headache theology that says, I just, I, I'm having a hard time putting this all together. Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. I was reading my Bible this week. I can't remember what I was doing. And at one point, I was fixating on John 1 and, and, and these words, in beginning. And I was trying to, okay, so when did God start? He didn't start. That's right. He didn't start. Well, how can you just be? And, and how is that? I mean, when, how can you? And I, for a minute, I, I literally stopped and shuddered and thought, da, and I went on. <laughs> you ever done that? It's just like, I, well, of course, I'm a finite little pip. I mean, it's just a pipsqueak. I, I, we're not going to, but here's, here's the key. Don't let that drive you to relativism. Don't let that drive you to, to skepticism about knowing anything about God. What the scriptures teach us is that when God did speak, he spoke in human language through his son and through the prophets so that what we do have is not exhaustive knowledge of God, but accurate knowledge of God. What he did reveal is actually accurate information about him. We will spend all eternity, those who go to heaven, then coming to know this God because it will take all of eternity to know him. Second thing that John tells us about the word is the word is the creator. And here is where we talked last weekend. We're going to, hear this, we're going to see this over and over again. John's gospel has what New Testament scholars call an extremely high Christology, which is just your doctrine of Christ. And it presents a very high Christology. And here it comes out when John tells us that the word, Jesus, is actually the creator, the Lord God creator. Through him, verse 3, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Nothing was made that has been made. So John is telling us the word is the creator. Paul, the apostle Paul, tells us the same thing. I want to invite you to turn back in your Bibles for just a moment. We're going to look at two other passages very briefly that stress this very thing. Colossians chapter 1, back in Paul's writings, his, his 13 books he has, book of Colossians, a small book he wrote to a church that is in today western Turkey, in the city of, ancient city of Colossae. And a book like Hebrews and like John is very Christ-focused in its theme. And in chapter 1, verses 15 to verse 17, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, we have this same bold affirmation that the Son is the Creator. 
Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The Son is the image, verse 15, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We did a series on Colossians just a couple years ago. Saw the word firstborn here does not mean the first one born, like he somehow started or was created. It's a title of honor, he, the preeminent one. He is, the Son is the preeminent one over the whole universe. He's the firstborn over all creation. It, for in him all things were created. Now notice that. All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One more stop, Hebrews chapter 1. A little bit further back in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1. Going to look at one verse, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 1. So here we have the Apostle John saying it. We have the Apostle Paul saying it. Author of Hebrews is anonymous. We don't know who wrote Hebrews for sure. Here, inspired scripture, saying it again. Who's speaking here, by the way? You can tell who's speaking by verse 8. And this is a very unique section because you have something going on here that's pretty rare in the Bible. And that is you have the Father communicating with the Son, talking directly to him. So here's the word. Intra, I-N-T-R-A, intra-Trinitarian communication. You have communication going on with the nature of the Godhead. The Father is speaking to the Son. We know that from verse 8 because the Father is speaking. And he says, about the Son, he says, and then he addresses the Son as your throne, O God. One of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Bible. But down in verse 10, the Father is still speaking to the Son. He also says, so the Father to the Son, intra-Trinitarian communication in the Godhead. The Father says to the Son, in the beginning, Lord. So the Father calls the Son God and he calls him Lord. And then he says, you, to the Son, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Kids, young people, ladies and gentlemen, you could not have a more exalted doctrine of Christ than you find in John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. If you're looking for a small project this week, take those three chunks and look at them and meditate on them and let them pull you out of your circumstances a bit and be reminded what is real and what is true and who sits on the throne. The third thing that John tells us about the word, back to John chapter 1, verses 4 to 13, is that the word is the true light. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 next. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word is the true light. Theologians have wrestled for centuries with the question here, and here, here's how it's set up. Did the light appear only when Jesus appeared in the incarnation? Or is John, in the context of these two paragraphs, we're, in the, we're still in the in, in beginning, did the light actually appear in beginning with the Logos? I was having 
Becky and I were doing dinner recently uh, with a friend of ours who is a professor of historical theology. And he and I were discussing this a bit, and he was reminding me that some of the early church fathers actually believed that the light here being described didn't just begin at the incarnation, but actually emanates from the beginning. And uh, Justin Martyr is an example, a great apologist from the second century, who argued that whatever light you saw in the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, was actually borrowed light that comes from the world. In, in other words, general revelation that Paul talks about in Romans 1. The, the knowledge of God is self-evident to all of creation. And so that when a secular non-Christian philosopher, say Plato, writes and gets a lot of things correct, he's actually tapping into this light. Doesn't mean he was a believer, but it does mean that he could ascertain a lot of stuff just by looking and studying God's revelation in nature. I remember I was a philosophy minor, some of you know in college. And I remember especially Plato, I read a lot of Plato, and I remember reading Plato and thinking, wow, he got a lot of stuff wrong. But it is quite amazing, actually, how much he got right as a secular, non-believing philosopher. And this would lend itself to that, that looking at creation, there is so much coming through creation, not enough to save, but enough to render us without excuse and an awful lot of truth about who God is. In this sense, it's very interesting. The Apostle Paul, playing off this, calls Satan, what? An angel of light. It means a false, not a good angel, a bad angel. Meaning, in contrast to Jesus as the true light, Satan and his angels actively seek to deceive people, even believers. People sit in Bible teaching churches who are deceived. Not, not, not deceived in the sense of losing their salvation, but can be very deceived about their lifestyle. Satan and his angels are masters of deception and imitation. And that is why ultimately you have things like false cults and false religions and distortions of the gospel. And it's why they are so dangerous. They lead to very dark places and they will lead many to judgment. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, these words... Test everything. <laughs> Test everything and hold on to what is good. We are supposed to be examining what we believe and why we believe it and going back and saying, what does the text say? And do that over and over and over again. Now in verse 6, we're introduced to John the Baptist. Don't get confused with the Johns here. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So don't get, this is not the author, not the Apostle John. This is John the Baptist, the burlap-wearing, bug-munching prophet of God that God sent. Wouldn't you, I would have loved to hear him preach. Verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe Verse 8, very important, hear this. He himself was not the light. Apostle John wants to make that very clear. This was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. We're going to learn more about John the Baptist in chapter 1. He becomes a very prominent player in the opening chapters of, of uh, John. And then next in verses 9 to 11, we're told that not only did the world reject the Savior, so did the Jewish people. 
verses 9 to 11. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize or acknowledge him. He came to that which was his own. Now we're talking about the Hebrews, Jews. But his own did not receive him. And we also learn that those who are willing to receive him will inherit eternal life. And that's in verses 12 and 13. And yet to all those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, there's how you get saved. If you missed that, you will miss salvation. Those who believed in his name, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. How are you born of God? By believing in the name of his one and only Son. And that brings us finally to our fourth affirmation, fourth thing John wants us to know about the word. And that's in verse 14 through verse 18. And it is this. The word became a human being. The word became flesh. So even though logos was a common phrase in that time, first century, second, you know, or, or even back to the third, fourth century BC, no philosopher ever would have said that logos was incarnated into human flesh. Again, human flesh, the material world, the tangible world, anything you could see or touch was deemed by Greek philosophy as evil. If you could see it or touch it, it was evil. Only that which is spiritual and visible is good. So no Greek philosopher ever would have Logos becoming incarnate in flesh. And yet that's exactly what John says happened here. Verse 14. And this is where he makes explicit that the word is Jesus. The word became flesh. Sarks in Greek. Sarks. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So, kids, young people, John wants you to know and make sure it's clear, Jesus is not just a prophet. He was a prophet. He's not just a priest, although he filled the office of priest. He wasn't just a king. He was king of Israel. He wasn't just a son of God. He wasn't just a God-enlightened human being. John wants you and I to know and be very, 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 very clear that Jesus is no other than Yahweh, the God of the universe, incarnated and means became human flesh, God crawling into human skin. That is biblical Christianity. Anything less, you have a false religion or a false cult. Something proclaiming something that is toxic and spiritually deadly. The word dwelt with us, verse 14 the word became flesh, and there's different English translations, dwelt with us. It's interesting that where the word comes from, some of you may know this, the word dwelling, he dwelled with us or is dwelling with us. Back to the Septuagint for just a second. Again, what's the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible about 200 BC. The Bible, Septuagint, is the one Jesus generally quoted in the Gospels. Back to that for just a minute. The word John used here for Jesus Coming and dwelling among us is the word used in the Septuagint for the tabernacle, not the temple. The tabernacle. What's a tabernacle? It was that portable, big portable tent that 
followed the Israelites around. They took it with them throughout the desert in the Pentateuch. And that's where they would set it up in the middle of the camp. And that is where God dwelt. The tabernacle. And here, John uses that same word that's used in the Septuagint. So the people would know this. And said, when the word became flesh, he tabernacled among us. So what's he telling us? That Jesus is now the new tabernacle where God dwelt in the tabernacle in the Israelite camp. Jesus is now the new tabernacle and that's where God dwells. It's a very strong connection point here. Jesus is the new tabernacle who replaces that old tent. Now Jesus is where God will dwell with his people. And that is why in verses 17 and 18, by the way, it says Jesus came to make the Father known. Verse 17 and 18. This is his mission. Because he now is where God dwells, for the law was given through Moses, verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now again, there's so much in this text, but I want to indulge me one more Greek word here. That phrase, who made him known, is a word you may have heard before, and it pops up in Bible colleges and in seminary curriculums. What's the word? Exegesis. Now, I joked in the first service, I, and I actually heard this before. Some people hear that, and they're not quite sure what that word means, and they think it means extra Jesus. And I even heard a person one time, like, yeah, it means like put a little extra Jesus in your sermon. That's not a bad idea, but that's not what the word is. Not extra Jesus, it's ex-a-Jesus, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. What is it? Just a Greek word that means lead the meaning out of something. So back to a Bible college or seminary curriculum, those of you who have been to Bible college seminary know, you will, and I took a number of these. Cal Heber's down here, he took a number of these too. You have a course that would say like Hebrew exegesis of the prophets or Hebrew exegesis of the Pentateuch or you get to the New Testament, Greek exegesis of Pauline writings or Greek exegesis of the Gospels. It just means a study of what that book or those books teach, leading the meaning out of it. And that is the exact word John uses of Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do, to exegete the Father to us. See? He came to explain who the Father is. So once again, we do not have exhaustive knowledge of God. That's, that's crazy. But what we do have, as D.A. Carson says so well, is accurate knowledge of God. What was given in human language is accurate. That's the point. Not exhaustive, but accurate. And Jesus came to make sure we had accurate knowledge of who God the Father and who God is. Jesus came to exegete the Father. By the way, it's important to note, all three members of the Trinity were involved in the incarnation. Very interesting. The Father did what? He sent the Son into the world to accomplish atonement and salvation. The Holy Spirit did what? Superintended over Mary and was responsible for the virgin conception of Jesus. And then Jesus obviously took on human skin and he lived and fulfilled the law and suffered and died, was resurrected and ascended to heaven. All three members of the Trinity very active in this. And it leads to something when it comes to Jesus being wedded to the nature of God, you know, how do you describe that in human language? Theologians over the centuries have used a phrase, don't freak out, I'll tell you what it is, the hypostatic union. What's that? Just a word that means personal. 
They're talking about when God became human in, 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 in a personal way. So the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus with two natures. And the early church, for the first several hundred years, had a number of councils to try to hammer out something that's somewhat unhammerable. What exactly does that mean? Two natures, one person forever. The Chalcedonian Creed put it this way. And it's worth reading creeds. I would encourage you to use creeds in your devotional time, off and on. I do. I'm reading right now through the canons of Dort, and they're fascinating as they unpack. I did the Augsburg Confession this last year. I would read through the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Westminster Confession. They are very great devotional helps. But here's the Chalcedonian Creed describing the hypostatic union. His, Jesus' two natures, God, human, are without confusion, change, division, or separation. And the implications is then that Jesus becomes the focal point of worship for the church universal. And that obviously was a sticking point in the first couple centuries. True story. Some of you know this story, some of you don't, but it's it's a fascinating story. I'll make it really brief. 325 AD, the Emperor Constantine, Emperor of the Roman Empire, most powerful man on the planet, did something unprecedented. Now, why do I say that? Well, previous to 325, pretty much every Roman emperor killed Christians. Here, suddenly, you have a Roman emperor who makes Christianity legal, doesn't become the official Roman religion until later, but he he legalizes it. And because the the, the nature of Jesus was a sticking point and was dividing the empire to some degree, it was a hot issue, he invites... 200 bishops from around the Mediterranean world pays their way. Pays their way. Now prior to this, if you were a bishop, you were hiding because they were hunting you down to kill you. Suddenly, you get an offer to come to Constantine's summer palace in Nicaea on the Black Sea, all expenses paid, to have a theological conference. This is, you know, wacko. This is unprecedented in Roman history. And the issue was Boiling this down, make it simple. Who was Jesus? Because this was dividing, you know, local areas, dividing regions, dividing churches, dividing bishops, dividing clergy. Is Jesus only a created being who is similar to the Father, or is he the eternal God in human flesh? Those who wanted to argue that Jesus was created and had a beginning wanted to use a Greek word, homoousios, which means similar to. And this actually became the position of modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. In the past, it was the Arians, but the Jehovah's Witnesses today want to argue Jesus is the exalted Son of God, but he is not God in human flesh. He had a beginning. He was Michael the Archangel before the Incarnation. He was created, but he is not God. Okay? That leads in very certain directions. The other side of the aisle wanted to argue, no, 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 hold it. And at the great... Council of Nicaea, they wanted to argue Jesus is God in human flesh. He wasn't created. And they wanted to use the Greek word homoousios. They only differed by one diphthong, one syllable. That's it. Oi or o. Similar or same. That's why words matter. (laughs) Words matter. And if you know your history, Council of Nicaea, 325. Council of Constantinople, 381. Settled on homoousios. In fact, we're going to, Pastor Doug's going to lead us in the Nicene Creed at the end of the service today. It affirming the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ. So I'm going to read one phrase 
Or one sentence out of the Nicene Creed here. And we'll be seeing this in a few minutes. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Think of these words. Now that you know the story a little bit, think of these words. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That's key. Being of one substance. Same substance. Homoousius as the Father. John wants you to know who the Word is. Which leads to our summons today. We're not going to turn to this passage every week. I am for the first few weeks because John is one of the very few books that not only tells you what his topic is, but at the end of the book he says, and here is my summons. So, let us turn to chapter 20. And I want these verses to ring out this coming year through this series. You can't hear these enough, friends. We can't. Every church has people who are saved and not saved. No different here. Every Sunday morning, sit in front of me, many who know Christ as Savior, and perhaps many who do not. And so, I want us to hear the gospel week in and week out. The Puritans were huge on the needing to feed their flock, but also evangelize their flock, knowing there were saved and unsaved present every week. And I want us to hear these words regularly. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Here's John's summons. I'll make a couple comments. We'll land the plane. Here we go. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, this gospel. But these are written. The seven that John incorporated into his gospel. Seven signs. These are written that you might believe. And that by belief, so again, what's the word believe? I'll talk about it in a second. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is Messiah. It's the most common designation of him, by the way, in the gospel of John is Messiah. The Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. What is John's summons? He wrote all of this for one reason. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, what happens by believing? You have life in his name. We noted last week that the Greek verb to believe does mean to make a decision, obviously. When you believe something, you choose to believe it. But it means more than just intellectual affirmation. doesn't mean less. You have to believe certain things to be saved. But it really, it's more than just saying, yeah, I know that's true. How do we know that? Because demons and Satan know certain things are true and they're not saved. Belief, according to the New Testament, and we said a fair translation of, of the Greek verb, is all in. I surrender. I joyfully submit to a new master. That, that is what's incorporated in the Greek verb to, to believe. It is affirming things are true, but then saying, I want those things. I believe those things. I am all in on those things. And then once we're saved, what's one of the very first things, especially if you have kids, we are supposed to do? Turn around and evangelize our children. It's a sacred calling. Not just to, you know, not just ask Jesus in your heart, to explain the gospel to them and make sure, and dads, we're supposed to be the dean of education on this one, to make sure 
that we are evangelizing, sharing the evangel, the good news, and urging them to repent and believe and obey. And that they understand what the gospel is and what it is not. I would encourage you dads to be using a catechism with your kids at home until they leave the home. We use the catechism until our kids left for college. Marvelous teaching tool. And I'm going to close on this encouraging note. And I say that because I changed my ending this week. Uh, actually, yesterday. I had a different ending. And I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon yesterday. wasn't on this. But it challenged me in an area, and so I changed based on that sermon. And it's a legitimate change because John actually goes this direction. Here's what's encouraging. Jesus said that when, G, I mean, Jesus said when he came to save, he not only came to save from judgment, which he did, but he also makes this incredible statement in John chapter 15. I have spoken these things to you so that your joy might be complete. Meaning that one of the reasons God saves sinners from judgment in hell is not only to deliver them from coming judgment, to in, but to invade their life here and now with joy. Real joy. And quite honestly, sadly, joy is something that is sadly missing from so many people, even in Bible teaching churches. But something that is promised to the people of God who seek to obey him. Hear this well, beloved. One of the surest signs that someone has met Christ and that Christ dwells in that person is the presence of ongoing joy. Joy. It should be the hallmark of the true believer. I close with this great promise from Psalm 84:11. No good thing does God withhold from those whose walk is upright. What a great promise. What a great gospel. What a great adventure we will be on this coming year as we journey through this inspired book of the Bible. Father, we are thankful for the gospel of John. We're thank you for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're also thankful you led the church to not adopt the counterfeit gospels, the Gnostic gospels. Like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Barnabas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. These other Gospels, while interesting, they're not inspired Scripture. Thank you for the, for the four we have. In John's unique place, separate from the synoptics, in coming at things from a bit of a different angle. We ask that you would help us to understand it, apply it. Father, we plead with you for conversions this year. Feed those who know you. Strengthen them. But for those who don't know you, who may have been sitting here for years, may this be the time they're born again. May we see conversions, salvation stories this year, many who come to Christ and are baptized as followers of him. And we pray all of this expectantly and joyfully in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen.